Hello and welcome to the Mayorzine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not so vintage, but mostly vintage fiction, curated and presented by me, your host, Chris Mayer. This week wraps up one serial story and begins another one. Last week on a May Day gift, Abby had just been named Queen of May for the upcoming school drama. Little did she know the moral dilemma this would bring. A May Day Gift by Mary Catherine Crawley. Four. Just think, Larry, said Abby to her brother when he came in after a game of ball. I'm to be Queen of May. You, he cried in a disdainful tone. Yes, indeed. And why not? I'm sure I don't see why you should look so surprised. I've been chosen because I can speak and act the best in our division. But the Blessed Virgin is Queen of May, objected Larry. Oh, of course, Abby said. But this will be only make-believe, you know. We are going to have a drama, and I'm to be queen. That is all. I should think you would not even want to play at taking away what belongs to the Blessed Virgin, persisted Larry, doggedly. She is the Queen of May, and no one ought to pretend to be queen besides. Oh, you silly boy, there's no use in trying to explain anything to you, cried Abby, losing patience. For the next half hour, she was not so talkative, however, and after a while she stole away, for in spite of her petulance at Larry's words, they had suggested a train of thought which made her want to be by herself. She went up to the oratory and stayed there a long time amid the twilight shadows. Finally, the ringing of the supper bell put an end to her musings. She knelt a few minutes before the statue and then ran down to the dining room. She was very quiet all the evening, and to Mrs. Clayton's surprise, the family heard no more of the May drama. The next day, at school, Abby waylaid Marion Gaines in one of the corridors. I want to speak to you, she began. Well, what's the matter, Abby? What makes you so serious this morning? inquired Marion. Nothing. Only I've been thinking about the May piece, and I want to tell you that I'd rather not be queen, faltered the little girl. You'd rather not be queen, repeated Marion, in astonishment. Why not? I thought you were delighted to be chosen. So I was, yesterday, the little girl hastened to say, for she would not have Marion think she did not appreciate the compliment. Then what has caused you to change your mind so suddenly, Marion went on. What a fickle child you are, to be sure. It is not that, stammered poor Abby, a good deal confused. But, but, well, you know, the Blessed Virgin is Queen of May, and it seems as if we ought not even to play at having any other queen. Marion stared at her incredulously. And so Missy has a scruple about it, she said, smiling. No, returned Abby, but my brother Larry thought so. And if it looks that way, even to a little boy like him, I think I would rather not pretend to be queen. A May piece without a queen. Why, it would be like the play of Hamlet with Hamlet left out, declared Marion. Did you not think that if you declined the part, we might give it to someone else? Abby colored and was silent. This had, indeed, been the hardest part of the struggle with herself. 
but there was an element of the heroic in her character. She never did anything by halves. Like the little girl so often quoted, when she was good, she was very, very good. Marion stood a moment looking at her. And do you really mean, she said at length, that you are ready to give up the role you were so delighted with yesterday and the satisfaction of queening it over your companions if only for an hour, that you are willing to make the sacrifice to honor the Blessed Virgin? With some embarrassment, Abby admitted that this was her motive. A sudden thought occurred to Marion. Then, Abby, you shall, she said. I'll arrange it, but don't say a word about it to anyone. Let the girls think you are to be queen, if they please. Why, Missy, she went on, becoming enthusiastic. It is really a clever idea for our drama. We shall have a lovely Maypiece after all. Marion hastened away, intent upon working out the new plan which her quick fancy had already sketched in outline. To be sure, she and Ellen had devised a different one and agreed that each should write certain scenes. Ellen had taken the first opportunity that morning to whisper that she had devoted to the drama all the previous evening and an hour before breakfast. Marion, indeed, had done the same. But it will not make any difference. We can change the lines a little, she said to herself, after reading the manuscript which Ellen passed to her at the hour of German study, a time they were allowed to take for this particular composition. Ellen, however, thought otherwise. What? Another plan for the May piece? she said, when Marion mentioned the subject. Why, see all I've written, and in rhyme, too. But it can be altered without much trouble, explained her friend. No, it can't. You will only make a hodgepodge of my verses, she answered, excitedly. I do think, Marion, that once we agreed upon the plan, you ought to have kept to it, instead of changing everything just because of a notion of a little girl like Abby Clayton. Here I've been working hard for nothing. It was just a waste of time. Marion pleaded and reasoned, but without avail. Ellen's vanity was wounded. She chose to imagine that her classmate and sometimes rival did not care whether her lines were spoiled or not. No, no, she reiterated. I'll have nothing to do with your new plan. You can get up the whole piece yourself. At least give me what you've written, urged Marion. We are so hurried, and the children ought to have their parts as soon as possible. But Ellen remained obdurate. Marion consulted the others of the class, and after some discussion, they decided in favor of the later design. For the next few days, she devoted every spare moment to the work. By the end of the week, she had not only finished the portion she had been expected to write, but also much of what Ellen was to have done, and the parts were distributed among the children. There were still wanting, however, the opening address and a dialogue, both of which Ellen had completed. Oh dear, cried Marion, that address of Ellen's is so pretty and appropriate if she would only let us have it. As we planned it together, if I write one, the principal ideas will be the same, and then, likely as not, she will say I copied from hers. How shall I manage? Ellen remained on her dignity. She would have nothing to do either with Marion or the drama, and kept aloof from her classmates generally. The intelligence had spread through the school that the two graduates had differed over the May piece. The exact point in dispute was not known, however, for Marion wished to keep her design a secret, and Ellen would not condescend to explain. In fact, she did not clearly understand it herself, for she had been too vexed at the proposal to change the plan to listen to what Marion said upon the subject. During this state of affairs, poor Abby was very unhappy. She felt that she was the cause of all the trouble, and it seemed hard that what she had done with the best of intentions should have made so much ill feeling. This disastrous occurrence was followed by another, which made her think herself a very unfortunate little girl.
As has already been explained, it was Larry's delight to keep always a few fresh blossoms in his pretty vase before the beloved statue of the Blessed Virgin. This he attended to himself, and no one ever interfered with the vase. On the day referred to, Abby had been rehearsing with Marion, and thus it happened that they walked part of the way home together. Marion stopped at a florist stand and bought a little bunch of arbutus. Here, put this on your altar, she said, giving it to Abby. She had heard all about the oratory. When the little girl reached the house, Larry had not yet come in, and the flowers had not been renewed that day. I'll surprise him, she said to herself. How pleased he will be to see this nice little bouquet. She took the vase, threw away the withered violets it contained, replaced them with the mayflowers, and put it back. But alas, being taken up with admiring the delicate pink arbutus and inhaling its fragrance, she did not notice that she had set the vase in an unsteady position. The next moment it tipped over, fell to the floor, and lay shattered at the foot of the altar. Abby stood and gazed at it hopelessly, too distressed even to gather up the fragments. Oh, what will Larry say? She cried, wringing her hands. He thought so much of that vase. What shall I do? While she was thus lamenting, she heard Larry's voice. He was coming straight up to the oratory. In another minute, he threw open the door. He had a little cluster of buttercups in his hand and was so intent upon putting them in the vase that he was halfway across the room before he noticed the broken pieces on the floor. When he did so, he stopped and glared at his sister. Oh, Larry, she stammered contritely. It was an accident. See, Marion Gaines gave me those lovely mayflowers, and I thought you'd be pleased to have them in your vase. Just as I went to put it back, it fell over. I'm awfully sorry. Larry's eyes flashed angrily, and his face grew crimson. Abby Clayton, he broke out. You are always meddling. Why can't you let things that don't belong to you alone? A storm of reproaches would no doubt have followed, but just then his angry glance turned toward the statue. There stood the image of Our Lady, so meek and beautiful and mild. And there, in a tiny frame at the front of the altar, hung Father Dominic's words of advice. Try every day to do some little thing to honor our blessed mother. Larry paused suddenly, for his indignation almost choked him. But in that moment of silence, he had time to reflect. What should he do today to honor the blessed virgin, now that his little vase was broken? He looked again at the statue. The very sight of the sweet face suggested gentler thoughts and counseled kindness, meekness, and forbearance. Well, Abby, he blurted out, I suppose I'll have to forgive you. But oh, how I wish I were only six years old so that I could cry. So saying, Larry laid the buttercups at the feet of Our Lady's statue and rushed from the room. The next day it happened that Ellen discovered Abby in tears at the window of the classroom. Ellen, though quick-tempered and impulsive, was kind-hearted. What is the trouble now, child? She asked gently, taking Abby's hand in hers. Oh, sobbed Abby. I feel so dreadfully to think that you and Marion don't speak to each other, and it's all my fault, because from something I said to Marion, she thought that instead of taking one among ourselves, it would be much nicer to choose the Blessed Virgin for our May Queen. And was that Marion Gaines's plan? Asked Ellen in surprise. Why, yes, but surely she must have told you, said the little girl. I see now that she tried to, replied Ellen, with a sigh at her own impetuosity. But I was too vexed to listen. I did not really understand before. Dry your tears, Abby. I'll do my best to make amends now. How foolish I've been, she ejaculated as Abby ran off in gay spirits. 
and how I must have disedified the other girls. I must try to make up for it. She found the verses she had written, and on looking them over, concluded that, after all, they needed only the change of a few words here and there. Then she wrote a little note to Marion, as follows. Dear Marion, I did not realize until today what you wanted to do about the Maypiece. If my verses would be of any use at this late hour, you are welcome to them. I should like to do all I can to help now, to make up for lost time. Ellen. Marion gladly accepted the overtures of peace. The May drama was duly finished, the rehearsals went on smoothly, and on the last day of the month of Mary the performance took place. It had been rumored in the school that Abby was not to be queen, and there was much speculation as to which of the little girls had been selected instead. As the drama progressed and the plan was unfolded, the audience was taken completely by surprise. Everyone had been eager to see the May Queen, but there was a general murmur of appreciation when, at the close, the curtain rose upon a beautiful tableau, a shrine glittering with many lights, in the midst of which was enthroned a lovely image of Our Lady, at whose feet the children laid their crowns of flowers, a crown to honor each transcendent virtue, and paid their homage to their beautiful Queen of May. A few days later, Father Dominic called at the Claytons. Well, children, he asked incidentally, have you done anything to please the Blessed Virgin during the past month? Abby and Larry were silent, but their mother kindly answered, I think they have tried, Father Dominic. And as for your lovely May Day gift, the presence of the statue seems to have drawn down a blessing upon the house. Thank you so much, Avon, for making our May that much better. Don't worry, folks, she'll be back. For now, let me appease you with another narrator joining our ranks. The wonderful Amanda Stribling is up next with some sassy O. Henry. The Brief Debut of Tildy by O. Henry if you do not know Bogle's Chop House and Family Restaurant, it is your loss. For if you are one of the fortunate ones who dine expensively, you should be interested to know how the other half consumes provisions. And if you belong to the half to whom waiters' checks are things of moment, you should know Bogle's. For there you get your money's worth, in quantity at least. Bogle's is situated in that highway of bourgeoisie, that boulevard of Brown, Jones, and Robinson, 8th Avenue. There are two rows of tables in the room, six in each row. On each table is a caster stand, containing cruets of condiments and seasons. From the pepper cruet, you may shake a cloud of something tasteless and melancholy, like volcanic dust. From the salt cruet, you may expect nothing. Though a man should extract a sanguinary stream from the pallid turnip, yet will his prowess be balked when he comes to wrest salt from Bogle's cruets. Also upon each table stands the counterfeit of that benign sauce made from the recipe of a nobleman in India. At the cashier's desk sits Bogle, cold, sordid, slow, smoldering, and takes your money. Behind a mountain of toothpicks, he makes your change, files your check, and ejects at you, like a toad, a word about the weather. Beyond a corroboration of his meteorological statement, you had better not venture. You are not Bogle's friend. You are a fed, transient customer 
and you and he may not meet again until the blowing of Gabriel's dinner horn. So take your change and go. To the devil if you like. There you have Bogle's sentiments. The needs of Bogle's customers were supplied by two waitresses and a voice. One of the waitresses was named Eileen. She was tall, beautiful, lively, gracious, and learned in persiflage. Her other name? There was no more necessity for another name at Bogle's than there was for finger bowls. The name of the other waitress was Tildy. Why do you suggest Matilda? Please listen this time. Tildy. Tildy. Tildy was dumpy, plain-faced, and too anxious to please to please. Repeat the last clause to yourself once or twice, and make the acquaintance of the duplicate infinite. The voice at Bogle's was invisible. It came from the kitchen and did not shine in the way of originality. It was a heathen voice, and contented itself with vain repetitions of exclamations emitted by the waitresses concerning food. Will it tire you to be told again that Eileen was beautiful? Had she donned a few hundred dollars worth of clothes and joined the Easter parade, and had you seen her, you would have hastened to say so yourself. The customers at Bogle's were her slaves. Six tables full she could wait upon at once. They who were in a hurry restrained their impatience for the joy of merely gazing upon her swiftly moving, graceful figure. They who had finished eating ate more that they might continue in the light of her smiles. Every man there, and they were mostly men, tried to make his impression upon her. Eileen could successfully exchange repartee against a dozen at once, and every smile that she sent forth lodged like pellets from a scattergun in as many hearts. And all this while she would be performing astounding feats with orders of pork and beans, pot roasts, ham and sausage in the wheats, and any quantity of things on the iron and in the pan and straight up and on the side. With all this feasting and flirting and merry exchange of wit, Bogles came mighty near being a salon, with Eileen for its Madame Ricamier. If the transients were entranced by the fascinating Eileen, the regulars were her adorers. There was much rivalry among many of the steady customers. Eileen could have had an engagement every evening. At least twice a week, someone took her to a theater or to a dance. One stout gentleman, whom she and Tildy had privately christened the Hog, presented her with a turquoise ring. Another one, known as Freshie, who rode on the Traction Company's repair wagon, was going to give her a poodle as soon as his brother got the hauling contract in the ninth. And the man who always ate spare ribs and spinach and said he was a stockbroker asked her to go to Parsifal with him. I don't know where this place is, said Eileen while talking it over with Tildy, but the wedding ring's got to be on before I put a stitch into a traveling dress. Ain't that right? Well, I guess. But Tildy. In steaming, chattering, cabbage-scented bogles, there was almost a heart tragedy. Tildy with the blunt nose, the hay-colored hair, the freckled skin, the bag meal figure, had never had an admirer. Not a man followed her with his eyes when she went to and fro in the restaurant, save now and then when they glared with the beast hunger for food. None of them bantered her gaily to coquettish interchanges of wit. None of them loudly jollied her of mornings as they did Eileen, accusing her when the eggs were slow in coming of late hours in the company of envied swains. No one had ever given her a turquoise ring or invited her upon a voyage to mysterious distant Parsifal. Tildy was a good waitress, and the men tolerated her. They who sat at her table spoke to her briefly with quotations from the bill of fare, and then raised their voices in honeyed and otherwise flavored accents, eloquently addressed to the fair Eileen. 
They writhed in their chairs to gaze around and over the impending form of Tildy, that Eileen's pulchritude might season and make ambrosia of their bacon and eggs. And Tildy was content to be the unwooed drudge if Eileen could receive the flattery and the homage. The blunt nose was loyal to the short Grecian. She was Eileen's friend, and she was glad to see her rule hearts and wean the attention of men from smoking pot pie and lemon meringue. But deep below our freckles and hay-colored hair, the unhandsomest of us dream of a prince or a princess, not vicarious, but coming to us alone. There was a morning when Eileen tripped into work with a slightly bruised eye, until the solicitude was almost enough to heal any optic. Fresh sky, explained Eileen. Last night as I was going home at 23rd and 6th, sashayed up, so he did and made a break. I turned him down cold, and he made a sneak, but followed me down to 18th and tried his hot air again. Gee, but I slapped him a good one side of the face, then he give me that eye. Does it look real awful, Till? I should hate that Mr. Nicholson should see it when he comes in for his tea and toast at 10. Tildy listened to the adventure with breathless admiration. No man had ever tried to follow her. She was safe abroad at any hour of the 24. What bliss it must have been to have a man follow one and black one's eye for love. Among the customers at Bogle's was a young man named Cedars, who worked in a laundry office. Mr. Cedars was thin and had light hair and appeared to have been recently rough dried and starched. He was too diffident to aspire to Eileen's notice, so he usually sat at one of Tildy's tables, where he devoted himself to silence and boiled weak fish. One day when Mr. Cedars came into dinner, he had been drinking beer. There were only two or three customers in the restaurant. When Mr. Cedars had finished his weak fish, he got up, put his arm around Tildy's waist, kissed her loudly and impudently, walked out upon the street, snapped his fingers in the direction of the laundry, and hide himself to play pennies in the slot machines at the amusement arcade. For a few moments, Tildy stood petrified. Then she was aware of Eileen shaking at her an arch forefinger and saying, why, Till, you naughty girl. Ain't you getting to be awful, Miss Slyboots? First thing I know, you'll be stealing some of my fellows. I must keep an eye on you, my lady. Another thing dawned upon Tildy's recovering wits. In a moment, she had advanced from a hopeless, lowly admirer to be an Eve sister of the potent Eileen. She herself was now a man-charmer, a mark for Cupid, a Sabine who must be coy when the Romans were at their banquet boards. Man had found her waist achievable and her lips desirable. The sudden and amatory cedars had, as it were, performed for her a miraculous piece of one-day laundry work, he had taken the sackcloth of her uncomeliness, had washed, dried, starched, and ironed it, and returned it to her sheer embroidered lawn, the robe of Venus herself. The freckles on Tildy's cheeks merged into a rosy flush. Now both Circe and Psyche peeped from her brightened eyes. Not even Eileen herself had been publicly embraced and kissed in the restaurant. Tildy could not keep the delightful secret. When trade was slack, she went and stood at Bogle's desk. Her eyes were shining. She tried not to let her words sound proud and boastful. A gentleman insulted me today, she said. He hugged me around the waist and kissed me. That's so, said Bogle, cracking open his business armor. After this week, you get a dollar a week more. At the next regular meal, when Tildy set food before customers with whom she had acquaintance, she said to each of them modestly, 
as one whose merit needed no bolstering. A gentleman insulted me today in the restaurant. He put his arm around my waist and kissed me. The diners accepted the revelation in various ways, some incredulously, some with congratulations. Others turned upon her the stream of badinage that had hitherto been directed at Eileen alone. Until these hearts swelled in her bosom, for she saw at last the towers of romance rise above the horizon of the gray plain in which she had for so long traveled. For two days, Mr. Cedars came not again. During that time, Tilly established herself firmly as a woman to be wooed. She bought ribbons and arranged her hair like Eileen's and tightened her waist two inches. She had a thrilling but delightful fear that Mr. Cedars would rush in suddenly and shoot her with a pistol. He must have loved her desperately, and impulsive lovers are always blindly jealous. Even Eileen had not been shot at with a pistol. And then Tildy rather hoped that he would not shoot at her, for she was loyal to Eileen, and she did not want to overshadow her friend. At four o'clock on the afternoon of the third day, Mr. Cedars came in. There were no customers at the tables. At the back end of the restaurant, Tildy was refilling the mustard pots and Eileen was quartering pies. Mr. Cedars walked back to where they stood. Tildy looked up and saw him, gasped, and pressed the mustard spoon against her heart. A red hair bow was in her hair. She wore Venus's Eighth Avenue badge, the blue bead necklace with a swinging silver symbolic heart. Mr. Cedars was flushed and embarrassed. He plunged one hand into his hip pocket and the other into a fresh pumpkin pie. Miss Tildy, said he, I want to apologize for what I done the other evening. Tell you the truth, I was pretty well tanked up or I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't do no lady that away when I was sober. So I hope, Miss Tildy, you accept my apology and believe that I wouldn't have done it if I'd known what I was doing and hadn't have been drunk. With this handsome plea, Mr. Cedars backed away and departed, feeling that reparation had been made. But behind the convenient screen, Tildy had thrown herself flat upon a table among the butter chips and the coffee cups and was sobbing her heart out. Out and back again to the gray plain where in travel they with blunt noses and hay-colored hair. From her knot, she had torn the red hair bow and cast it upon the floor. Cedar she despised utterly. She had but taken his kiss as that of a pioneer and prophetic prince who might have set the clocks going and the pages to running in fairyland. But the kiss had been maudulent and unmeant. The court had not stirred at the false alarm. She must forevermore remain the sleeping beauty. Yet not all was lost. Eileen's arm was around her, and Tildy's red hand groped among the butter chips till it found the warm clasp of her friends. Don't you fret, Till, said Eileen, who did not understand entirely. That turnip-faced little clothespin of a cedars ain't worth it. He ain't anything of a gentleman, or he wouldn't ever have apologized. Thank you so much, Mandy. She'll be back too. Of course, at the moment, I don't have any of Volume 4 planned, so I'm not sure what they'll be back with, but both Avon and Mandy will be back, he says confidently and definitively. Now that we're into summer, it's time for the blockbusters. The movie theaters are filling up with sci-fi of all kinds, so let's do the same here. With Marvel's Phase 4 movies paving the way, the multiverse is a hot topic right now. 
Loki on Disney+, Spider-Man No Way Home, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and even Russian Doll and Stranger Things on Netflix. It's all about parallel realities and dimensions. So we're going to jump on that bandwagon here at the Marazine. Prepare yourself for some 1930s dimension-hopping, swashbuckling sci-fi. Phantoms of Reality by Ray Cummins Chapter 1 Wall Street or the Open Road When I was some 15 years old, I once made the remark, Why, that's impossible! The man to whom I spoke was a scientist. He replied gently, My boy, when you are grown older and wiser, you will realize that nothing is impossible. Somehow that statement stayed with me. In our swift-moving, wonderful world, I have seen it proven many times. They once thought it impossible to tell what lay across the broad, unknown Atlantic Ocean. They thought the vault of the heavens revolved around the earth. It was impossible for it to do anything else because they could see it revolve. It was impossible, too, for anything to be alive and yet be so small that one might not see it. But the microscope proved the contrary. Or again, to talk beyond the normal range of the human voice was impossible until the telephone came to show how simply and easily it might be done. I never forgot that physician's remark, and it was repeated to me some ten years later by my friend, Captain Derek Mason, on that memorable June night of 1929. My name is Charles Wilson. I was 25 that June of 1929. Although I had lived all of my adult life in New York City, I had no relatives there and few friends. I had known Captain Mason for several years. Like myself, he seemed one who walked alone in life. He was an English gentleman, perhaps 30 years old. He had been stationed in the Bermudas, I understood, though he seldom spoke of it. I always felt that I had never seen so attractive a figure of a man as this Derek Mason. An English aristocrat he was, straight and tall and dark, and rather rakish, with a military swagger. He affected a small black mustache, a handsome debonair fellow with an easy grace of manner, a modern d'Artagnan. In an earlier, less civilized age, he would have been expert with sword and stick, I could not doubt. A man who could capture the hearts of women with a look. He had always been to me a romantic figure and a mystery that seemed to shroud him made him no less so. A friendship had sprung up between Derek Mason and me, perhaps because we were such opposite types. I am an American, of medium height and medium build, ruddy with sandy hair. Derek Mason was as meticulous of his clothes, his swagger uniforms, as the most perfect Beau Brummel. Not so myself, I am careless of dress and speech. I had not seen Derek Mason for at least a month, when one June afternoon a note came from him. I went to his apartment at eight o'clock the same evening. Even about his home there seemed a mystery. He lived alone with one manservant. He had taken quarters in a high-class bachelor apartment building near Lower Fifth Avenue, at the edge of Greenwich Village, all of which no doubt was rational enough, 
but in this building he had chosen the lower apartment at the ground floor level. It adjoined the cellar. It was built for the janitor, but Derek had taken it and fixed it up in luxurious fashion. Near it, in a corner of the cellar, he had boarded off a square space into a room. I understood vaguely that it was a chemical laboratory. He had never discussed it, nor had I ever been shown inside it. Unusual, mysterious enough, and that a captain of the British military should be an experimental scientist was even more unusual. Yet I had always believed that for a year or two, Derek had been engaged in some sort of chemical or physical experiment. With all his military swagger, he had the precise, careful mode of thought characteristic of the man of scientific mind. I recall that when I got his note, with its few sentences, bidding me to come see him, I had a premonition that it marked the beginning of something strange, as though the portals of a mystery were opening to me. Nothing is impossible. Nevertheless, I record these events into which I was plunged that June evening with a very natural reluctance. I expect no credibility. If this were the year 2000, my narrative doubtless would be tame enough. Yet in 1929, it can only be called a fantasy. Let it go at that. The fantasy of today is the sober truth of tomorrow. And by the day after, it is a mere platitude. Our world moves swiftly. Derek received me in his living room. He admitted me himself. He told me that his manservant was out. It was a small room with leather-covered easy chairs, rugs on its hardwood floor, and sober brown portieres at its door and windows. A brown parchment shade shrouded the electrolier on the table. It was the only light in the room. It cast its mellow sheen upon Derek's lean, graceful figure as he flung himself down and produced cigarettes. He said, Charlie, I want a little talk with you. I have something to tell you, something to offer you. He held his lighter out to me with its tiny blue alcohol flame under my cigarette, and I saw that his hand was trembling. But I don't understand what you mean, I protested. He retorted, I'm suggesting that you might be tired of being a clerk in a brokerage office, tired of this humdrum world that we call civilization, tired of Wall Street. I am, Derek. Heavens, that's true enough. His eyes held me. He was smiling half-whimsically. His voice was only half serious, yet I could see in the smoldering depths of those luminous dark eyes a deadly seriousness that belied his smiling lips and his gay tone. He interrupted me with, And I offer you a chance for deeds of high adventuring, the romance of danger, of pitting your wits against villainy to make right triumph over wrong, and to win for yourself power and riches, and perhaps a fair lady. Derek, you talk like a swashbuckler of the Middle Ages. I thought he would grin, but he turned suddenly solemn. I'm offering to make you henchman to a king, Charlie. King of what? Where? He spread his lean brown hands with a gesture. He shrugged. What matter? If you seek adventure, you can find it, somewhere. If you feel the lure of romance, it will come to you. I said, henchman to a king? but still he would not smile. Yes, if I were king. I'm serious, absolutely. In all this world, there is no one who cares a damn about me. Not in this world. But he checked himself. He went on, you are the same. You have no relatives? No, none that ever think of me. Nor a sweetheart, or have you? No, I smiled. Not yet, maybe never. 
But you are too interested in Wall Street to leave it for the open road? He was sarcastic now. Or do you fear deeds of daring? Do you want to right a great wrong? Rescue an oppressed people? Overturn the tyranny of an evil monarch? And put your friend and the girl he loves upon the throne? Or do you want to go down to work as usual in the subway tomorrow morning? Are you afraid that in this process of becoming henchman to a king, you may perchance get killed? I matched his caustic tone. Let's hear it, Derek. Chapter 2 The Challenge of the Unknown Incredible! Impossible! I did not say it, though my thoughts were written on my face, no doubt. Derek said quietly, Difficult to believe, Charlie. Yes, but it happens to be true. The girl I love is not of this world, but she lives nevertheless. I have seen her, talked with her. A slim little thing, beautiful. He sat staring. This is nothing supernatural, Charlie. Only the ignorant savages of our past called the unknown, the unusual, supernatural. We know better now. I said, this girl, he gestured. As I told you, I have for years been working on the theory that there is another world existing here in this same space with us. The fourth dimension. Call it that if you like. I have found it, proved its existence. And this girl, her name is Hope, lives in it. Let me tell you about her and her people, shall I? My heart was pounding so that it almost smothered me. Yes, Derek. She lives here, in this space we call New York City. She and her people use this same space at the same time that we use it. A different world from ours, existing here now with us, unseen by us, and we are unseen by them. A different form of matter, Charlie, as tangible to the people of the other realm as we are to our own world. Humans like ourselves. He paused, but I could find no words to fill the gap. And presently he went on. Hope's world, coexisting here with us, is dependent upon us. They speak what we call English. They shadow us. I murmured, phantoms of reality. Yes, a world very like ours, but primitive, where ours is civilized. He paused again. His eyes were staring past me, as though he could see through the walls of the cellar room into great reaches of the unknown. What a strange mixture was this Derek Mason. What a strange compound of the cold reality of the scientist and the fancy of the romantic dreamer. Yet I wonder if that is not what science is. There is no romantic lover gawping at the moon who could have more romance in his soul or see in the moonlit eyes of his loved one more romance than the scientist finds in the wonders of his laboratory. Derek went on slowly. A primitive world, primitive nation, primitive passions. As I see it now, Charlie, as I know it to be, it seems as though perhaps Hope's world is merely a replica of ours, stripped to the primitive, as though it might be the naked soul of our modern New York, ourselves as we really are, not as we pretend to be. He roused himself from his reverie. Hope's nation is ruled by a king, an emperor, if you like, a monarch beset with the evils of luxury and ease and wine and women. He is surrounded by his nobles, the idle aristocracy, by virtue of their birth proclaiming themselves of too fine a clay to work. The crimson nobles, they are called, 
because they are fat crimson cloaks, and their beautiful women, voluptuous, sex-mad, are wont to bedeck themselves in veils and robes of crimson. And there are the workers, toilers, they call them, oppressed, downtrodden toilers, with hate for the nobles and the kings smoldering within them. In France there was such a condition, and the bloody revolution came of it. It exists here now. Hope was born in the ranks of these toilers, but has risen by her grace and beauty to a position in the court of this graceless monarch. He leaped from his chair and began pacing the room. I sat silent, staring at him. So strange a thing. Impossible? I could not say that. I could only say, incredible to me. And as I framed the thought, I knew its incredibility was the very measure of my limited intelligence, my lack of knowledge. The vast unknown of nature, so vast that everything which was real to me, understandable to me, was a mere drop in the ocean of the existing unknown. Don't you understand me now? Derek added vehemently. I'm not talking fantasy. Cold reality. I've found a way to transport myself, and you, into this different state of matter, into this other world. I've already made a test. I went there and stayed just for a few moments, a night or so ago. It made my heart leap wildly. He went on, There is chaos there, smoldering revolution which at any time, tonight perhaps, may burst into conflagration and destroy this wanton ruling class. He laughed harshly. In Hope's world, the workers are a primitive, ignorant people, superstitious. They're all primed and ready to shout for any leader who sets himself up. My chance, our chance. He suddenly stopped his pacing and stood before me. Don't you feel the lure of it? The open road? The road is straight before me, and the red gods call for me. I'm going, Charlie. Going tonight, and I want you to go with me. Will you? Would I go? The thing leaped like a menacing shadow, risen solidly to confront me. Would I go? Suddenly there was before me the face of a girl. White apprehensive. It seemed almost pleading. A face beautiful, with a mouth of parted red lips. A face framed in long, pale golden hair, with big, staring blue eyes. Wistful eyes, wan with starlight. Eyes that seemed to plead. I thought, why, this is madness. I was not seeing this face with my eyes. There was nothing, no one here in the room with me but Derek. I knew it. The shadows about us were empty. I was conjuring the face only from Derek's words, making real that which existed only in my imagination. Yet I knew that in another realm, with my thoughts now bridging the gap, the girl was real. Would I go into the unknown? The quest of the unknown, the gauntlet of the unknown, flung down now before me, as it was flung down before the ancient explorers who picked up its challenge and mounted the swaying decks of their little galleons and said, We'll go and see what lies off there in the unknown. That same lure was on me now. I heard my voice saying, Why, yes, I guess I'll go, Derek. Chapter 3 Into the Unknown We stood in the boarded room, which was Derek's laboratory. Our preparations had been simple. Derek had made them all in advance. There was little left to do. The laboratory was a small room of board walls, board ceiling, and floor. 
windowless, with a single door opening into the cellar of the apartment house. Derek had locked the door after us as we entered. He said, I have sent my manservant away for a week. The people in the house here think I have gone away on vacation. No one will miss us, Charlie. Not for a time, anyway. No one would miss me, save my employers, and to them I would no doubt be small loss. We had put out the light in Derek's apartment and locked it carefully after us. This journey. I owned that I was trembling and frightened, yet a strange eagerness was on me. The cellar room was comfortably furnished. Rugs were on its floor. Whatever apparatus of a research laboratory had been here was removed now, but the evidence of it remained. Derek's long search for this secret, which now he was about to use. A row of board shelves at one side of the room showed where bottles and chemical apparatus had stood. A box of electrical tools and odds and ends of wire still lay discarded in a corner of the room. There was a tank of running water and gas connections, where no doubt Bunsen burners had been. Derek produced his apparatus. I sat on a small low couch against the wall and watched him as he stripped himself of his clothes. Around his waist, he adjusted a wide, flat, wire-woven belt. A small box was fastened to it in the middle of the back, a wide, flat thing of metal, a quarter of an inch thick, and curved to fit his body. It was a storage battery of the vibratory current he was using. From the battery, tiny threads of wire ran up his back to a wire necklace flat against his throat. Other wires extended down his arms to the wrists, still others down his legs to the ankles. A flat electrode was connected to the top of his head like a helmet. I was reminded as he stood there of medical charts on the human body with the arterial system outlined. But when he dressed again and put on his jaunty captain's uniform, only the electrode clamped to his head and the thin wires dangling from it in the back were visible to disclose that there was anything unusual about him. He said smilingly, Don't stare at me like that. I took a grip on myself. This thing was frightening, now that I actually was embarked on it. Derek had explained to me briefly the workings of his apparatus. A vibratory electric current, for which as yet he had no name, was stored in the small battery. He had said, There's nothing incomprehensible about this, Charlie. It's merely a changing of the vibration rate of the basic substance out of which our bodies are made. Vibration is the governing factor of all states of matter. In its essence, what we call substance is wholly intangible. That is already proven. A vortex, a whirlpool of nothingness. It creates a pseudo-substance, which is the only material in the universe. And from this, by vibration, is built the complicated structure of things as we see and feel them to be, all dependent upon vibration. Everything is altered directly as the vibratory rate is changed from the most tenuous gas, to fluids, to solids, throughout all the different states of matter, the only fundamental difference is the rate of vibration. I understood the basic principle of this that he was explaining, that now when this electronic current, which he had captured and controlled, was applied to our physical body, the vibration rate of every smallest and most minute particle of our physical being was altered. There is so little in the vast scale of natural phenomena of which our human senses are cognizant. Our eyes see the colors of the spectrum, from red to violet, but a vast, invisible world of color lies below the red of the rainbow. Physicists call it the infrared. And beyond the violet, another realm, the ultraviolet. With sound, it is the same. Our audible range of sound is very small. There are sounds with too slow a vibratory rate for us to hear, 
and others too rapid. The differing vibratory rate from most tenuous gas to most substantial solid is all that we can perceive in this physical world of ours, yet of the whole that is so very little. This other realm to which we were now going lay in the higher, more rapid vibratory scale. To us, by comparison, a more tenuous world, a shadow realm. I listened to Derek's words, but my mind was on the practicality of what lay ahead. An explorer standing upon his ship may watch his men bending the sails, raising the anchor, but his mind flings out to the journey's end. We were soon ready. Derek wore his jaunty uniform. I wore my ordinary business suit. A magnetic field would be about us so that in the transition anything in fairly close contact with our bodies was affected by the current. Derek said, I will go first, Charlie. But Derek... A fear greater than the trembling I had felt before, leaped at me, left here alone with no one on whom to depend. He spoke with careful casualness, but his eyes were burning me. Just sit there and watch. When I am gone, turn on the current as I showed you and come after me. I'll wait for you. Where? I stammered. He smiled faintly. Here, right here. I'm not going away, not going to move. I'll be here on the couch waiting for you terrifying words. He had lowered the couch, bending out its short legs until the frame of it rested on the board floor. He drew up a chair before it and seated me. He sat down on the couch. He said, oh, one other thing. Just before you start, put out the light. We can't tell how long it will be before we return. Terrifying words. His right hand was on his left wrist, where the tiny switch was placed. He smiled again. Good luck to us, Charlie. Good luck to us. The open road. The unknown. I sat there staring. He was partly in shadow. The room was very silent. Derek lay propped up on one elbow. His hand threw the tiny switch. There was a breathless moment. Derek's face was set and white, but no whiter than my own, I was sure. His eyes were fixed on me. I saw him suddenly quiver and twitch a little. I murmured, Derek? At once he spoke to reassure me. I'm all right, Charlie. That was just the first feel of it. There was a faint, quivering throb in the room, like a tiny, distant dynamo throbbing. The current was surging over Derek. His legs twitched. A moment. The faint throbbing intensified. No louder, but rapid. Infinitely more rapid. A tiny throb, an aerial whine, faint as the whirring wings of a hummingbird. It went up the scale, ascending in pitch, until presently it was screaming with an aerial microscopic voice. There seemed no change in Derek. His uniform was glowing a trifle, that was all. His face was composed now. He smiled, but did not speak. His eyes roved away from me, as though now he were seeing things that I could not see. Another moment, no change. Why, what was this? I blinked, gasped. There was a change. My gaze was fastened upon Derek's white face. White? It was more than white now. A silver sheen seemed to be coming to his skin. I think no more than a minute had passed. His face was glowing, shimmering. A transparent look was coming to it. A thinness, a sudden unsubstantiality. He dropped his elbow and lay on the couch, stretched at full length at my feet. His eyes were staring and suddenly I realized that the face that held those staring eyes was erased. A shimmering apparition of Derek was stretched here before me. 
I could see through it now. Beneath the shimmering, blurred outlines of his body, I could see the solid folds of the couch cover. A ghost of Derek here. An apparition, fading, dissipating. A gossamer outline of him, imponderable, intangible. I leaped to my feet, staring down over him. Derek! The shape of him did not move. Every instant it was more vaporous, more unreal. I thought, he's gone. No, he was still there. A white mist of his form on the couch, melting, dissipating in the light like a fog before sunshine. A wisp of it left like a breath, and then there was nothing. I sat on the couch. I had put out the light. Around me the room was black. My fingers found the small switch at my wrist. I pressed it across its tiny arc. The first shock was slight, but infinitely strange. A shuddering, twitching sensation ran all over me. It made my head reel, swept a wave of nausea over me, a giddiness, a feeling that I was falling through darkness. I lay on the couch, bracing myself. The current was winding up its tiny scale. I could feel it now, a tiny throbbing, communicating itself to my physical being. And then in a moment I realized that my body was throbbing. The vibration of the current was communicating itself to the most minute cells of my body. An indescribable tiny quivering within me. Strange, frightening, sickening at first. But the sickness passed, and in a moment I found it almost pleasant. I could see nothing. The room was wholly dark. I lay on my side on the couch, my eyes staring into the blackness around me. I could hear the humming of the current, and then it seemed to fade. Abruptly I felt a sense of lightness. My body, lying on the couch, pressed less heavily. I gripped my arm. I was solid, substantial as before. I touched the couch. It was the couch which was changing, not I. The couch cover queerly seemed to melt under my hand. The sense of my own lightness grew upon me. A lightness, a freedom, pressed me, as though chains and shackles which all my life had encompassed me were falling away. A wild, queer freedom. I wondered where Derek was. Had I arrived in the other realm? Was he here? I had no idea how much time had passed. A minute or two, perhaps. Or was I still in Derek's laboratory? The darkness was as solid, impenetrable as ever. No, not quite dark. I saw something now. A glowing, misty outline around me. Then I saw that it was not the new, unknown realm, but still Derek's room. A shadowy, spectral room. And the light, which dimly illumined it, was from outside. I lay puzzling, my own situation forgotten for the moment. The light came from overhead, in another room of the apartment house. I stared. Around me now was a dim vista of distance and vague, blurred, misty outlines of the apartment building above me. The shadowy world I had left now lay bare. There was a moment when I thought I could see far away across a spectral city street. The shadows of the great city were around me. They glowed and then were gone. A hand gripped my arm in a solid grip. Derek's voice sounded. Are you all right? Yes, I murmured. The couch had faded. I was conscious that I had floated or drifted down a few inches to a new level. The level of the cellar floor beneath the couch. Cellar floor? It was not that now. Yet there was something solid here, a solid ground, and I was lying upon it, with Derek sitting beside me. I murmured again. 
Yes, I'm all right. My groping hand felt the ground. It was soil, with a growth of vegetation like a grass sward on it. Were we outdoors? It suddenly seemed so. I could feel soft, warm air on my face and had a sense of open distance around me. A light was growing, a vague, diffused light, as though day were swiftly coming upon us. I felt Derek fumbling at my wrist. That's all, Charlie. There was a slight shock. Derek was pulling me up beside him. I found myself on my feet with light around me. I stood wavering, gripping Derek. It was though I had closed my eyes and now they were suddenly open. I was aware of daylight, color, and movement. A world of normality here, normal to me now because I was part of it. The realm of the unknown. Next issue, Derek and Charlie discover where they are, and a guilty conscience streams of red hands. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. Very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayorzine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bolkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.